Welcome to Episode 2 of Cap Talk, the computer-aided biology podcast. In Cap Talk, we talk to the who's who of our community, those working in the trenches across this diverse field, from data scientists to biologists, and from investors to engineers. You will hear their stories, opinions, and expertise on everything happening at the intersection of biology and technology. Join the revolution at computeraidedbiology.com. Previous podcasts we had with Kelton Bukra, she mentioned the she highlighted the importance of speaking to vendors, and we listened. Now we're here with Joby Jenkins from SPT Lab Tech, Director of Product Strategy. How do you become a Director of Product Strategy? Thanks for having me. That's an interesting question to start with. So I don't think my journey has necessarily been the blueprint for becoming a Director of Product Strategy, but I can tell you how, how I got here. I started at TTP, as it was then. Um, and still is now since SPT LabTech has been divested from TTP. But 20 years ago, I was a graduate mechanical engineer and I came to TTP not really knowing which area of product design or engineering I would actually be be pursuing. I did a degree at Loughborough University in product design and manufacture, which combined some elements of manufacturing engineering, mechanical engineering. And I thought probably more my, my career would be in like consumer product design Uh, But when I came to TTP, the area of where they needed engineers most, mechanical engineers, uh, was in a division that were to develop products around life science automation. And I didn't really know much about that at all at Mm. the time, but I was willing to give it a go and learn on the job. So I was a part of a very small project team um, and we started working on developing tools, low volume liquid handling tools um, back then. So in 2001, I was already working on automated liquid handling technologies. Um, And then from that, I became involved in all aspects of bringing those products to market. So I worked on the Mosquito product. I became the lead product manager. At the time, we had no commercial infrastructure in terms Mm. of sales support even yeah no field there was no one in the field so i literally took that product to market wow did you have to interact with a lot of end users then to build that up yeah absolutely i think that's key to the success of any product we collaborated with local companies local universities and as the product became something more than a prototype and you know, got closer to being a product. We obviously had a lot of interest from the market, pharmaceutical companies, and at the time there was you know a team of three or four people working on that. So it meant you know immediately international travel, going to demonstrate the product, talk to people about how they might use it, evolve it, come back to the engineering teams, and take it to the next level. And then by two thousand and four, we we had a product which we launched. Yeah, interesting. So the liquid handling field is a. Uh at the moment it's quite booming there are a lot of companies coming out startups but we've also got like the old players like the the Tekkens and the Hamilton they're not working specifically on low volumes but how is that to see that whole community that whole the whole scene changing if I really yeah it's, in, it's really interesting to see how it how it is evolving and how it's getting it's getting bigger mm. and I think what that tells you is that there's more demand I think scientists and people who work in labs are realizing all the time that automation is something that can benefit them, it's something that can enable them to do more. So I think, you know, the fact it's more diverse and there's more companies and a wider range of companies can only be a good thing. Yeah, so I studied and I was doing a lot of manual work uh, using the, or the normal pipette or the, the multi-channel. But within biology, when did liquid handling really become a thing, especially automated liquid handling? Is that something that has always been there? And so now that the technologies are coming in, that's basically taking off. When did it really become a, a thing? 
I think, well, I can only go back as far as, as my career um, takes me to sort of year 2000. And uh, at that time, there was there was some automated liquid handling in mm. some of the labs, but it was definitely not the norm. I think it was, you know, mainly big pharma. And at that time, sort of high throughput screening was just becoming something that pharmaceutical companies were looking to do more of. And uh, with that, there was a, there was a wave of automation that, that got developed and got yeah. funded because of that. Um, and I think that kind of really pushed automation and particularly automated liquid handling forward. I think in my career, I've always been working in, in the field of low volume liquid handling. And, and that's something that's even today, you know, not particularly established. It's still a, a small segment of the market, but it's definitely growing as, as people look to miniaturize further savory agents, safe plastic. So that's a segment that, you know, has, has been evolving for at least 20 years and yeah. is continuing to do so. So, so for the people that don't really understand the difference between like low volume and, and high volume. Can you give an example of, of what you what it's being basically applied to, especially yeah, what, the low volume? What what is a low volume versus high volume? Yeah. Are we talking <laughs> yeah, a, yeah. a trickle and a flood? This is uh, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's a good point. I, I think in 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 my mind at least, I'd say a low volume is below a microliter, uh, yeah. and a high volume is higher than a microliter. But that, that's an arbitrary um uh, an arbitrary point. But in terms of pipetting systems you know you talked about your, your kind of traditional high volume systems like hamilton's tecan beckman's mm. you know they're typically in the microliter range and then there's the low volume systems like mosquito dragonfly acoustic systems that that i've worked on so it's sub microliter or nanoliter range there obviously are lower there are technologies out there now that will get you to picoliters or, yeah. or, or beyond i think there's a trend to go even lower yeah. So, so on a scientific level, what's the challenge in uh, the material, the viscosity of, of your liquids? And what's the, I can imagine when you're working on low volumes, that is probably a thing that you have to think and be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. I think physical properties of materials has a much bigger effect as, as you go down in volume. Um, mm. Surface tension effects have a much bigger impact than, than mass uh, as you go to, you know, some microliter droplets. Viscosity is, is another thing that really is it plague scientists and anyone who's worked at the bench um, with a hand pipette and a, a viscous reagent will know this and, and oftentimes they'll end up using a positive displacement pipette in order to get around those challenges and that, that was exactly the philosophy that we took when, yeah. when we've developed our, our liquid handling technologies here at SPT LabTech. We've always gone for positive displacement to, to eliminate those problems as you say that are particularly prevalent at low volumes. Yeah. Other important aspects of, of liquid handling are the speed, accuracy, software integrations. Um, when you speak to your end users, what are the most important features they really value of, of your product? I, I really think it's, you know, the, the things you mention are, are always there on the spec sheet, but actually it's it's usability and reliability. Mm. They're the two things that end users really appreciate. And I think that's what we've gone out of our way to deliver over the years. And it's something that is you know, absolutely key to product offerings is we want to make sure that we're developing a system that will always be in use, will always, new users will be able to walk up to it and use it. Um, knowledge will not necessarily be lost if, you know, somebody leaves the lab and the thing then is going to sit there unused for, for many years to come because no one knows how to, how to make it work. Yeah. Um, so I think they're, they're the key things actually. Obviously speed and accuracy and, you know, volume range are important, but yeah. the, the, the sort of more intangible things of user experience and, and absolutely reliability. You know, as a scientist, if your experiment kind of goes wrong at the last hurdle because of some pipetting error. Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> you're going to be unhappy. Yeah, also interesting from, from my point of view, because um, the technologies are coming in now, they're, they're new, they're, they're quick. 
but it also means that as a vendor you need to adapt to the market and um, what you see a lot with liquid handlers every year there's a new one coming out um, you, you have a new feature that they come out how, how does it work innovation wise is that something that really comes up from the user or is that something that in-house that you already focus on like how can we improve our product as a as a company itself yeah an interesting question I, I think that there are always new products that come out that have a new feature or um, you know like they're very quick for example but I think for us it's always about solving the, the, the customers the users problem the scientists mm. problem and I, I think sometimes there's innovation for innovation's sake um, yeah. and you can just develop something because because you can from an engineering point of view but has it really got a use in terms of enabling the, the scientists to get their answers quicker, which is ultimately what it's all about. Mm. Um, so I think you have to be careful with innovation. You, you you need to do it in some circumstances, but in other in other times you just need to find the right solution. Yeah. Um, from, from our point of view, we spend a lot of time listening to customers and we try and listen without preconceptions about what we could engineer or what's already been engineered or what other companies have engineered. We're trying to actually listen to what they really need and, and get to the bottom of how we can deliver it. And if that requires innovation, then absolutely we'll look to develop something that's new and innovative. But if it doesn't, then we won't. So yeah. it really depends on the, the need that you're trying to address as to how and when you innovate. So that kind of leads us on to um, SLAS. Now, we, we mentioned just before we started recording that I wasn't there. So this question is for <laughs> the two of you yeah. uh, and, and everybody listening. How was it? It's the biggest automation conference. It was just there at the end of January. And uh, what trends did you guys see emerging? And, and you mentioned just there, what are people are looking for? What, what are they looking for now? Yeah, I've, I've been going to SLAS back then. It was ALA and SBS, the, the two conferences that combined to make SLAS or SLAS. Um, for, I, I just worked it out, actually, because you asked. I knew you were going to ask a question around it. 16 years. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to every one and you know with the very first one I went to in 2004 there I was as a, as a graduate engineer with my new product Mosquito which was a nanoliter low volume liquid handling system and this year here I was 2020 with, with the, the same product same technology more or less and yeah. I think that goes to my point that low volume liquid handling is evolving it is coming of age that product has stood the test of time because the, there's still a market need in mm. fact there's a gathering market need um, for for that low volume technology so it, it's great to be able to go back and you know having been going for so long there's a lot of people that I know in the community there's a lot of you know other other vendors customers the, and colleagues that, that I like spending time with so it's a great conference uh, we love going it's really busy for me particularly <laughs> having been been going so long and there's so many things to do and people to see and yeah. um so yeah I, I i can't speak highly enough about it it was it was great it was exciting there's always new product launches there from from us and from other vendors so it's always you know it's the it's the forefront so for me it was was the first time at slash people already told me about it said it was going to be very big you see a lot of vendors and for me it was really great because i really got a really good idea what happens in the lab automation space and uh, something that really struck me as well is obviously the amount of vendors but also um, the collaborative nature because I could see I think I saw one of your devices integrated with uh, I can't remember another company um, but there was was it bio bio zero yeah. um, so integration with different devices um, obviously also with, with the software side with synthase how important is it that you collaborate because that's a big tagline on your on your website mm. and agility and, and being collaborative yeah absolutely I mean it's critical for us collaboration is is key not only in the way we look to develop new products 
products. Um, we, we look to collaborate with, with end users and customers, um, but also, as you say, with other vendors. You know, ultimately, mm. we're trying to provide solutions for scientists. And you know, one company doesn't have the skill set to be able to, to deliver everything to, to, the, to a lab that has a need. Typically, they need some elements of software, they need some elements of hardware, they need some elements of automation and, and, and integration, and those things won't, won't all come from one company. One mm. company that claims to be able to do everything is probably not going to be great at all of those elements. So, so I think having the sort of collaborative nature means that the end user ultimately gets a better experience. They get the best software, they get the best hardware, they get the right liquid handler. Mm. So it's really the combination of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes that, that's overwhelming for customers to realize that they have to kind of go to different people to get the right the right tools but actually they're going to get a much better experience and they're going to get the expertise in each of those companies that can be delivered to them via their field applications scientists yeah. and their and their developers that means that they ultimately end up with a better solution to their product so yeah we're, we're completely open um, to collaboration with with other vendors yeah do you think that's also a challenge uh, do you do you pick your collaborators do they come to you how does that really work I think it comes back to the customer. Ultimately, mm. we wouldn't go out of our way to kind of force a collaboration. We would wait typically till, till a, a customer or preferably a group of customers is asking for a similar thing. And then I think we realize that there's there's need, there's a market yeah. need that's pulling. Um, and at that point, it's worth the investment because, you know, collaborations are easy to kind of think up and, you know, do a marketing flyer or something. But actually, the, yeah. the, the work that goes on in the background to enable these two devices or be it software, hardware or scheduling to actually work together well and deliver a smooth experience for the user is, is quite a lot of work. So yeah. there's an investment level there which you need to think carefully about when and why you do them. Yeah, interesting. This was your first slash as SPT LabTech, yes, not as TTP. Did correct. The, did the branding uh, change? How was that received by the community? <laughs> it was good it, question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a good question. It did come up. Um, certainly, you know, if you look at our logo and our, and our branding, it hasn't changed. All that's changed is is the the letters um, from TTP to SPT LabTech, and we did that on purpose. We um, we didn't want to confuse the market. We didn't want to you know make users feel like we we changed in any way or we, yeah. we were you know following a, a legal obligation to to as we divest from TTP mm. to to change our, our name so actually it was it wasn't that big a deal i think we thought it might be but in practice it was it was pretty smooth customers you know recognize the same friendly faces the same products and and the, the same you know company culture is there so mm. you know, in our in our minds, nothing's really changed. Just just a couple of letters. Yeah. Also, nothing that changed was the the names of your devices: mosquito, exactly, dragonfly. Mm. Where did they come from? <laughs> so well, mosquito. If you, if you actually look at how a mosquito um, operates, uh, the, the the pipetting instrument that is not the not the insect. Um, it's very much like the proboscis that actually kind of goes in and draws blood. Okay. Uh, a mosquito tip would go into a well and draw liquid in a very similar way, and it looks a bit like a, the proboscis of a mosquito. So that's how mosquito came about. 
Um, and then because that was such an established product brand, when we developed Dragonfly, we wanted to keep the, the insect theme and have I think that's a good shout. <laughs> applicable, so yeah. yeah. I, I'm glad you didn't go with something that was another disease-carrying vector, like the tsetse <laughs> fly or something. <laughs> yeah, so um, within the community, we really want to build a community of the people that are working in the space. But we also focus a lot on talent, and uh, we're also focusing on, like, for people that are interested in the field of liquid handling or the field of low-volume liquid handling, um, what are the things that you can recommend them when they're studying or when they're, they're going out to conferences to really come into this niche? Because it's it's quite a growing field. Yeah, I think I think for me anyway, the key thing is being inquisitive about how things work. It's a natural kind of engineer's view of life. You know, mm. as a kid, I always like to understand things and I like to make things and, you know, build things that, that, that worked. And I think that's always come through in, you know, in, in what I've done. And ultimately, liquid handling is... It sounds simple, you know, yeah. you're moving a liquid from here to there, but actually it, there's a lot of physics at play. It's quite a complex process, particularly as you get into low volume. So I think having a passion for, for understanding and, and trying to, you know, push the limits of, of what, you know, what might be obvious and easy, like I say, high volumes, maybe that's easier than, than lower volumes because you don't have these effects of, yeah. of surface tension and static and things. So I think, you know, you, you need to be patient, um, you need to be inquisitive. And I think then you can you can build on that and, and you know look to try and evolve and innovate as I say when when required. Yeah, yeah. That's important because it's an engineering process. You work a lot with biologists. You probably have people also working on the software side. So it's a a, a collaborative effort that, that that comes along when when you think about developing a product or even improving a product. Um, how, how is it your experience working with, let's say, a biologist? Because they just focus on the science. They want the science to be on point. How do you how do you cope with that? I think it comes down to what I mentioned earlier about collaboration with the customers and the end users. Um, we, we always strive whenever we're developing something new to, to spend a lot of time and really you know, embed the product development team in, in the labs of the users. So we have some in-house uh, scientists, but the majority of the feedback is actually coming from beta partners and, and customers alike. Yeah. So that, you know, that as, as my role is a key part of my role um, to make sure that that information is free-flowing because, you know, the worst thing you can do as a, as a company of engineers is lock yourself in a room and develop what you think is a really cool product and then two years later bring it to market and realize that it's not what the, what the end user needs. Yeah. So I think, you know, we're aware of that and we, we, we address that. So you mentioned software, that's again, absolutely key to usability in, in this, this day and age with, you know, consumer products that have such nice intuitive user interfaces you know, lab instruments are, you know, are lagging behind, you know, and yeah. it's something that we need to, as an industry, we need to improve. We need to make the, the user interfaces of our, our instruments as, as slick as that on a smartphone or, or a tablet. And, and that's, um, I think, something that, again, you ask about a SLAS, that's something that you see more and more, that companies are addressing that and they're making mm -hmm. the interfaces and the, the kind of usability elements of the products better. Yeah, so the software looks at to be the link, the bridge between the engineering of the devices and, and the biology, but the biologist really goes in and says, okay, I understand this software and I can basically get my biology through it. Is that correct? Y yes, to some degree. I think there's also, there's a sort of ergonomic, um, physical interaction as well. Mm. You know, these machines aren't black boxes that you can just program from a computer. You actually need to go and give them reagents and give them tips and take plates on and off them if, if it's not in a fully automated setting. So there's there's that element as well. And I think, again, usability of that element is something that 
you know we think very hard about um, and it's something that it goes back to the point of making sure that when the instrument is installed in the customer's lab it's it's the one that everyone's happy to use nobody's afraid of it yeah. uh, you know that's important to us yeah and I also think it's very important that the fact that like, you've got so many scientists working on certain projects and they all need to have that that experience on working with it so the software needs to be as easy as easy to use as possible so that a new person can come in understands it yeah exactly like yeah, really I always found that funny when I was working in labs that you would get a new piece of kit and, and people wouldn't use it. Yeah. There's two kinds of scientists in the lab, the people who are eager to go in and don't care if they break it. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, I would say, the majority of people who are just like, oh, there's the new machine. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to touch that, you know, because yeah. they're afraid it is. Yeah, and, some, and some of them are essentially just big gray boxes. Mm that uh, there's nothing really enticing about them. Mm. And they're expensive, big grey boxes. And yeah. Very expensive, big grey boxes. That's, you know, that's why people are afraid. They know that a lot of money's been invested in that piece of kit and they don't want to be the one that's the first to break it. Um, <laughs> and I think from a, from a vendor's point of view and an equipment development point of view, it's important that you you make sure that you don't develop an instrument that people are afraid of because yeah. it will not get used and, and then it's, you know, you failed. Yeah, which brings me to my next point because I'm just thinking about the scientists in me doing my PhD a couple of years ago. Um, I'm doing a lot of manual work and um, I'm doing a lot of repetitive work as well and I'm working on low volumes. At what point will I consider a device? What are the things that you probably see in your new clients that are going from manual to automation that they're saying, okay, I'm now ready for that device? Mm. Because as you said, it costs a lot of money. It's an investment. Yeah. I think it depends on where they're trying to get to. I think often in science, if you can do more, if you can answer more questions more quickly without necessarily an expanding consumable budget for more reagents and more people to pipette more plates, hmm. then you, you get a very obvious benefit. Um, so that's that's one area where people say, okay, um, I, if I could miniaturize this reaction, I could use the same reagent kit to do a hundred times more experiments. That would mean that I could get to my answer more quickly. So yeah. that's one, you know, that's one point um, that people get to where they realize. The, the other, the other point you mentioned is, you know, repetitive no, nature of pipetting in the lab. And I think there's there's a there's a health and safety aspect to this as well. You know, mm -hmm. you're, you've obviously done it. Lots and lots of pipetting is not necessarily good, and it gets to a point where and I think the thing for me, fundamentally, is science is not about doing those menial tasks over and over again. Yeah. And if you can get to, you know, remove people from having to do that so they can actually go, you know, answer the questions, the scientific questions more quickly, then again, that's a, that's a huge advance. Yeah. So I think it needs some forward thinking from, from the management or in your case, you know, the university, the lab manager, whatever, yeah. to actually make the leap and make that investment. But yeah. that usually the, the return on that is, is pretty rapid. Yeah. No, I 100% agree on that. And I think it's something that Dave and I discussed already in previous mm. talks as well. It's, it's really about the how and the why um, as a scientist, because scientists, we think about complex things. We think we hypothesize stuff. So that's really the why question. With all these technologies coming out now, the how is always is, is almost being taken care of because there's so many great technologies coming in that allows us to really do the thinking that we've got in our heads. The how, how we do things, how we approach things, has been changed completely by automation because now we can do things that our hands previously we were limited by, hmm. um, and it's leading to some interesting experiments. I think I have an interesting question for you, and it's actually 
the answer will be a question. So what question would you ask potential customers, researchers out there? I'd ask them what what are their bottlenecks? What problems are they faced with that they'd like us to be able to solve? And it's pretty simple. Um, and it's and you get a very you, you know, when you ask it, you get a very wide ranging set of responses. And and I think a lot of it, as I mentioned earlier, comes to preconception. You know, they they think about what instruments they've got and they think about problems they might have. So that would be great if you could develop something that was like that, but it didn't do this or it didn't have this error that kept occurring. Mm-hmm. And whereas actually, what we try and get to the bottom of was actually never forget that. What do you what are you actually trying to do? And then we can think about it in a, in a kind of different way, and yeah. and that's where innovation comes from. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you don't so, want to reinvent the wheel. No. You want a whole different mode of transportation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we talked about the importance of biology. We talked about devices, the hardware. I also want to touch a little bit on on consumable. In this case, tips, because when it comes to liquid handling, tip is very important. And uh, mm-hmm. when I was at SLES, and I think one of your colleagues demonstrated the. I think it was it wasn't the dragonfly and no, it was the mosquito and they're like a machine gun type of, of mm-hmm. tips do you manufacture tips yourself yeah yeah we do we do all the manufacturing here in cambridge in the uk um we have very strict uh, qc on that mm. and the mosquito tip as, as you probably saw is a very unique device in that it has its positive displacement therefore it has to have an inbuilt plunger um, that moves or a piston that moves up and down to, to displace the liquid and the other innovative feature particularly is the as you mentioned the machine gun the bandolier yeah. so again we applied an engineering take on on pipette racks and we looked at you know how everyone else does it which is you know with a rack of tips and it's not very efficient it's very batch as a, from a process point of view it's not very efficient it's a, it's a batch process so with mosquito it's a continuous feed uh, within the you know the length of the bandolier which holds yeah. up to thirty six thousand tips so it makes for a very efficient way of storing tips much smaller much less material mm. um, and also a very rapid tip exchange yeah you mentioned earlier on i'm harking back to something good 20 minutes ago you mentioned sustainability how important is sustainability for your company yes definitely i mean it's important for everyone i think and every company right now and it, it, it's something that's only going to um, increase and, and so it should. So I think from our point of view, looking at that consumable element, I mean labs, it's a very interesting question. Labs traditionally have thrown away an awful lot of plastic and yeah. pipette tips and plates are kind of right up there in, in the, the amounts of plastic being being thrown. So I think, um, yeah, we, we certainly look at that. We certainly look at miniaturization generally as a good thing. Uh, less reagent, you know, more dense experiments, the higher density of plates. So in, in some regards, we can enable that. But it's something that we're, we think about um, and we think about ways to address that going forward. Yeah. Especially in drug discovery, right? That's where the low volume has been most applied to. Is that correct? So are there other areas where it is it is about discovery? Well, like, yeah, but it's also about basic research as well. I think, yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned your PhD. There's lots of labs where, you know, one of, one of the areas where we have most users is, is in structural biology and protein crystallization. Yeah. And yes, there's protein crystallization groups within pharmaceutical and biotech companies, but there's also an awful lot of academic groups that are, you know, looking and studying particular proteins, not necessarily with drug discovery at the forefront of, of their endeavor. So I think 
it's not fair to generalize and say miniaturization is only used in drug discovery. It's actually pretty broad. Quite interesting because you've got different types of clients. I can imagine that people in academic research groups are using the devices. You've got people in startups, very early stage. We also got biopharma, yeah. which is much bigger. What are the differences between those three? Are there certain aspects that, uh, that, let's say, an academic focuses more on than, let's say, uh, a biotech startup? Yeah, I think certainly with the academic groups, numbers of users per device mm. is, is very typically very high on average. Um, we have some labs where there's literally you know 50 to 100 users that, that have open access oh, wow. to use the machine. So to your point about um, being afraid of it and different users you know, not wanting to use it in, in those core sort of centralized facilities and universities, you really you know that's really where you test your test your device from a usability and a reliability point of view. In in the in the startup world and the and the pharmaceutical world, it, you may have one user and yeah. a dedicated user, and nobody else touches the machine, and and they kind of keep it just how they, how they want it. So that's you know a, a big difference that we see. You know we're here in. Sunny Melbourne, Cambridge. Melbourne in Australia. Not Australia. <laughs> but uh, very active place, Cambridge, obviously. I imagine you probably have a couple of local customers. But how? Uh, what's the global spread of, uh, of your products? It's definitely UK-centric, I think, mm. to some degree, because of where we started. And yeah. as I said, when we started, we weren't introducing a product um, as an established company that had distribution networks globally. So we kind of built out from here within 20 years. But actually, now our split is probably, uh, I would say, f- over 50% in the US. Um, oh, wow. And then, yeah, the, the 40 in Europe and 10 the rest of the world. Yeah. The buzz is the... Asian market in terms of research and development and manufacturing is growing and growing and growing. Do you think that's going to be the future? Are you hearing any buzz from from that part of the world? Absolutely, it's growing faster. I think there's different dynamics um, in terms of miniaturization and automation that Western cultures are more open to that in some, well, Japan aside, but I'm thinking China. For us to get traction there took a little longer. Um, but actually now it's really growing rapidly and you know they're, they're really seeing the benefits of automation yeah oh, interesting so that's that's also probably the, the usage that's basically been going up through the field of automation more and more people are using it there are now more and more um, key areas in, in life sciences where automation being applied to because we already talked about like automation the end-to-end mm-hmm. loop so yeah, liquid handling is, is, is such an important feature of that as well yeah, and you talked before about the, the how and the why elements, and I think, yes, you can get a lot of people in the lab doing a lot of hand pipetting, but that doesn't necessarily help you get to the answers quicker. Yeah. Um, you know, I think people realise that with automation, it, 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 it frees up the scientists to do more science rather than do more pipetting, yeah. and that's true wherever you are in the world. Do you think it's going to put undergraduates out of a job when they come to <laughs> visit a lab and, and they are made to do all the pipetting? No, no, I think that gives them a chance to learn how to program the, the robots. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> and also think about the science. Mentioning undergraduates, I know that I like them to be the butt of my jokes, but um, <laughs> where do you source your talent from then? Because it's clear you've got a very diverse set of things you need to look at. Cambridge is is a, a great well it's double edged it's a great spot because there is an awful lot of talent but it's also very competitive um, mm. but you know in the, in this area in the whole sort of golden triangle but anyway we have a very international team uh, my mm. team I've got people in Europe and, and the US as well field based people um, so we we really don't have any major restriction on where we where we look for talent the industry is quite 
small in some senses. So there's a lot of people that we know and people that, you know, they've seen the company, they've tracked the company and they yeah. they kind of approach us. But equally, Word of mouth. Yeah. yeah, equally from, from a sort of engineering point of view, you know, Cambridge is a, a great spot to be to attract new talent. Yeah. Have you been poaching people from your old uh, your old university at Loughborough? I haven't actually. No, we, <laughs> we haven't got anyone else from Loughborough here. Oh, so sorry. Saying. I was trying to help. Sorry, Loughborough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so yeah, we're here for the computer data biology community, and what we really want to do is we want to listen and, and, and talk to the, the host of this community. And um, from your perspective, like when you think when we talk about computer data biology, what do you think about that? What was the first thing that comes into your mind? I, I knew you were going to ask that question, and I didn't actually think about an answer because I wanted to just do yeah. it. Yeah. First thing that comes to first thing it. that comes to mind is actually for me. I, I'm I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not a biologist. Hmm. So you know, it's it's kind of from that respect, it's a little bit alien to me. However, I've been involved in technology that's serving science for my entire career. So for me, it's more about kind of technology aided biology is kind yeah. of what I've spent my career doing, and uh, I see over the last. 10 years, maybe a bit less, the the impact of the, the sort of computer element is certainly growing. And, and there's more and more data being generated. You look at like sequencing um, techniques and just generally the amounts of data that are coming out, predominantly facilitated by automation and instrumentation yeah. that, that allow that rapid data generation. Then, then the computing element becomes massive. Big data, you know, it's a hot topic. Um, and as I said before, the, the the UI, the interfacing to people interacting with these these tools in the lab is also ultimately software. Yeah. So I think it's for me it's something where the technology is in my mind has always been there, and now the the, the element of the computing is is really what's helping yeah. enable it more rapidly. Yeah, and I think that's just a very good point because uh, if we if we look at biology when we go like in the nineteen hundreds working on. On, on, on small molecules, aspirins, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 1980s, the larger molecules coming in, mm-hmm. antibodies. Now we're working in cell engine therapies, like whole cells. It's becoming so much more complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this is where the tools haven't really been kept up with the biology that's now basically improving. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And I think it's even, even in chemistry, I mean, there's a lot of AI and predictive modeling starting to happen around chemicals and molecule um, so for drug, you know, drug discovery, yeah. we talk about virtual drug discovery now based on AI, and yeah. uh, I think there's it's not just biology; it's across the whole the whole sphere. Yeah, yeah. It's good that the technology is now uh, catching up in biology, right? Yeah, definitely. I think actually that was a wonderful answer to that question. I caught up with a few companies at Synthesis Biology Bites and Beer event, asking them what computer aided biology means to them. You don't mind me recording. Ian from Cambridge Consultants, what does computer-aided biology mean to you? I think uh, computer-aided biology, intelligent design of a biological system, I think is a a goal that we should be working towards. Gemma from Syngenta, what does computer-aided biology mean to you? I think trying to use computer-based approaches to better design experiments and and just deepen your understanding of the science behind them. Timo from Beers, what is computer-aided biology to you? Yes, computer-aided biology for me would be if I can have a million sequences, put them into an intelligent algorithm and an algorithm and understand which sequence has the best performance for any one target. 
Kate from Hamilton, what does computer-aided biology mean to you? It means Hamilton Robotics. That was, that was despicable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Genius, but also. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's, that's the most important thing because we want to get these different perspectives. And I really, I really like the fact that you didn't link the biology and, and, and the computer, but you really come from a technical perspective. And, and which is so important in, in the field. So getting people from different backgrounds, being diverse, um, but also being disruptive. And I think also for the next generation, it's just very important that we see these aspects and see like, where can I add value in this, this bigger field. Which brings me on to my you know, final question and last question a bit as well. Dun, is, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, within the community, so you, 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 you meet a lot of users, you, you interact with a lot of uh, people in the lab. Is there a certain aspect of category of group of people that you're also very much interested in to, to find out a bit more about, whether it's from the investment side, whether it's um, a specific uh, area of research or really more technical engineering side? What are the people, what, are, what type of people would you like to get into your, your network mail? I, th I think ultimately it's people who have these bottlenecks, these problems that, that we can, as a, as a company, we can develop tools mm. to solve. You know, they're the, they're the ones that are most interesting to me. And the, the other area, obviously, we've got good contacts, good customer base. You know, those labs evolve. Their, their remits of what they're trying to do changes. So, you know, staying in touch with, you know, the, the wide network that I've built up over 20 years in the industry yeah. is really important. You know, you mustn't forget your customers always looking for some new new thing or new beta partner to, mm -hmm. to talk to about the next big thing but you know ultimately it comes down to having a constant flow of information about the problems that are out there that people want to solve and as you've just alluded to science is moving very fast at the moment yeah it always has but it seems to be gaining momentum um so those things shift quickly and you know product development takes time so aligning those two things yeah, and making sure good. you're developing a product that is going to be relevant by the time it's finished um is is difficult and you know people with the you know forward thinking people that are looking for solutions for the future's problems you know that's really where where we can add value and where that would be beneficial for everyone. Yeah. These are the type of people you want to meet next. People with bottlenecks, scientists, people with questions. Yeah. They really want to solve problems. I want to thank Joby for taking time out of his busy, busy day. No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Talk, uh, talk to us and let us come in and wreck up the place with a blanket and, and recording equipment. So in computer data biology, we're really looking at 21st century tools in biological research, R&D and manufacturing. And within the community, we really want to encourage discussions, collaborations and best practices driving biology forward. That's all for this month, but you can check out computeraidedbiology.com for recent news in the field and for our updates on the community. If you want to sponsor an episode of Cab Talk, please get in touch at revolutionaries at computeraidedbiology.com. See you next month.